Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The effects of the Gulf Loop current on tropical cyclone development and intensification is often a major focus for forecasters. However, this current has much broader impacts beyond tropical cyclones, such as extra-tropical cyclone development and even tornadoes. Today, we welcome Dr. Anthony Knapp, Director of the Geochemical and Environmental Research Group at Texas A&M University. He's also a member of the Board of Directors for the Gulf Research Program. In this episode, we'll explore current research being done to improve understanding and predictive skill of the loop current system and its eddies. Dr. Nat will also discuss how his team at Texas A&M plans to increase observations of the loop current to aid in regional forecasting. Dr. Nat, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's a pleasure. This is going to be really interesting because as I was telling my colleagues here in the uh, in the engineering room, this is a, t- a topic that I know a little bit about from my meteorological lens as a, as a meteorology professor myself, but there's so much that I'm eager to talk to you about. But before we do that, I want to give a little context because one of the first places I really became aware of the loop current is during Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. Uh, I understand that there there may have been some interplay between the loop current and Katrina and its intensification. So let's start with a basic definition for our listeners of what the Gulf loop current and loop loop current system is. Okay. Well, the loop current is a a current, a body of water that moves up from the Caribbean and enters the Gulf of Mexico between the Yucatan Strait and uh, the west end of Cuba. That's about a a 200-kilometer or 140-mile passage. And that water moves through at an incredible rate. Uh, The total, in in oceanography, we use a a term called a sphere drip, which is a million cubic meters of water moving past one point per second. In this case, the measurements uh, suggest that it's about 28 million sphere drips. And I guess to make it more easy for everybody that if you consider a Volkswagen as about three cubic meters, it's about nine million Volkswagens going past one point per second. So it's a great deal of water. Wow. That is quite a bit of water yeah. moving through. And, so, and it also leaves the Gulf of Mexico through the Florida Strait and then, and then mixes with the Caribbean current and becomes the Gulf Stream. Now, there are, there are three phases uh, of the loop. One is extended, and your uh, point with uh, Katrina, it was extended so hot water went all the way up almost to the coast of Louisiana. So that's one form. The second form is when it's retracted. So instead of moving up uh, towards Louisiana, it just moves across the coast, northern coast of Cuba and then joins the Gulf Stream. And then there's the eddy shedding. And so this is when the extended part pinches off and that forms a loop. Uh, sorry, an eddy. And that eddy moves from east to west and causes havoc with the oil and gas industry and many other things. 
if you want to kind of get a visual of this loop current system, uh, just put in loop current system in, in your Google or in your browser. And uh, I think you'll find many examples of the system. Uh, we were, I'm looking at one here from NASA and the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research or UCAR, but I'm sure there are many others because podcast is an audio format, but I think it would be useful to kind of Google along as you're listening here. Now, one of the things you mentioned, and I want to stay with this for a moment, you mentioned a loop current system and you also mentioned the extension that impacted Katrina. I, I know that Hurricane Michael in 2018, which devastated parts of Florida, Georgia, and the Southeast, moved into this region. I would I would assume that the loop current may have played a role in Hurricane Michael. These loop current waters, uh, you mentioned the Gulf Stream, so they're anomalously warm uh, as compared to the sort of surrounding or ambient water? Yeah, that's correct. They, you know, they contain a huge amount of heat. And what happened in 2005 with Katrina, uh, Wilma, and Rita was the storms went over the loop. It takes very little uh, area, physical area, to take those storms up to Category 5s, and that's what happened. And uh, it also, you know, as you know, as a as a meteorologist, that they uh, can take heat from 75 to meters uh, to 100 meters down. So, in the old way of looking at hurricanes, we used to think that you know the surface temperature had to be 28.5 degrees centigrade or whatever it might be. And now, what we're interested in far more is upper ocean heat content, where there's a lot of heat going down to at least 75 meters. In the case of Michael, it was a uh, eddy. Uh, that that uh, Michael went over and that caused the intensification to a category four. I'd like to contrast that that though with Hurricane Harvey, which was a very local uh, thing here for Texas, and uh, Harvey uh, intensified to a four, and much of that was due to um, the coastal heat that was available in the coast of Texas. It was very warm. Uh, my group did a study of it. We just had a, a paper published in uh, the JGR uh, journal in, in, uh, in the U.S. Yes. And so it's interesting because I hadn't actually thought about the implications or linkages in terms of uh, uh, Harvey as well, but uh, that was a more localized regional heat. But I wanted to start there. I, I want to kind of circle back now and, and tell the uh, listeners a bit more about you and your research. But I wanted to start with that discussion about Katrina and Michael, just to give the listeners some context for why this loop current is so important, this loop current system. And we're going to talk about other facets of weather as well. But I, I wanted to make those linkages. But before before I do that, let me just kind of set the stage on who uh, Tony Knapp is. He's the director of the Geochemical and Environmental Research Group at Texas A&M University, has a, a bachelor's degree from Wisconsin State University, a master's in oceanography from the University of Southampton, and a Ph.D. in chemical oceanography from the University of Southampton as well. He's also a member of the National Academy of Science Gulf Research Program Advisory Board uh, and the Research Program Board as well of the National Academy. So he someone that knows this system well, uh, and as you already heard, has a, a really good uh, way of talking about this. So I always like to ask my guest on Weather Geeks, how did you get into becoming an oceanographer? Is this, uh, many of the meteorology guests that we have on here talk about becoming interested in fourth grade, middle school. Have you always been an ocean geek? <laughs> I guess I have. My father operated some cargo ships. 
and in that used to trade all around the world. And when I was a small kid, I was instead of going to some summer camp, I was shoved on a a ship given a chipping hammer or a rag, depending on whether my job was in the engine room or up in the up in the bridge. So I was very interested in science. But I actually did pre-med. And after a little bit, I realized I would probably injure more people than I'd save. <laughs> so I switched to uh, oceanography and started with a master's. In England, like you, can, you can do a one-year master's. So I did my... Uh, uh, Bachelor of Science in the United States. I'm British as well, so I went to England, did a one-year master's, then stayed on. I did a PhD. Very, very nice, and I, 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 I found that interesting because I, I yeah, we, it's always important, listeners, to realize what your strengths and weaknesses are sometimes early, and it sounds like that was the case with you in terms of your pre-med uh, uh, realization there. Now, the National Academy of Sciences received uh, five hundred million dollars to create the Gulf Research Program, and. I would like to sort of know for myself, and I'm sure the listeners would be interested as well, what is this Gulf Research Program? But before you do that, uh, Tony, could you tell the listeners what the National Academy of Sciences are? Because we both of us know, but people listening to the podcast may not know. So the National Academy of Sciences was founded in 1863 by uh, President Lincoln as an independent advisory board for the government. It's not a government agency. It's completely independent. And, and as a result, they have done studies on many things. They're now, it's not just the National Academy of Sciences. It's also the National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Medicine. And so they're called NASEM or NASEM, um, if, with all three together. But they're independent. They carry out studies on many things. Uh, they'll get an expert panel together and study, um, you know, in, the, in one of these cases, it was the Gulf Loop current and the predictability of it. But they do things from uh, uh, supercomputers to engineering to many things. But it's a very uh, well-known uh Organization. If anyone is ever in Washington D.C., you should certainly go and and visit the building. It's it's a beautiful building uh, along uh, Constitution Avenue, and uh, it's been there for a very long time. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of serving on a couple of National Academy stu expert study committees and have visited that very beautiful building as well as their newer building over closer to the uh, Verizon or I guess I don't think it's the Verizon Center, but whatever the basketball arena is. So they yeah, that's correct. They actually have a newer facility as well. Well, now, now tell us about the Gulf Research Program. I understand it may have some origins in the BP oil spill in 2010, which uh, I, I know that BP was required to pay uh, penalties of more than $20.8 billion, making it the largest environmental damage settlement in history. So is there a connection here to this Gulf Research Program? Yes. In fact, there were a number of things with that $20.8 billion that was used, and $500 million of it went to create the Gulf Research Program. And as they wanted it to last a very long time, in this case, 30-year endowment, there weren't many organizations that they felt could manage this for that long a period and be completely independent. So that's when the National Academy were uh, provided with that, with that money, and then they, they managed it over that period of time. Very nice. And so how did you get involved with the program? Well, I was, I was, uh, I'm actually 
just to clarify, I'm now off the board. You te- you do a three-year term. So I was somehow I was selected, and uh, there's a board of 22 members made up of, in my view, fascinating people. And I, think, I guess, as you know, in the studies you've been involved with with the National Academy, they attract uh, a very interesting and eclectic group of very brilliant people. I was, you know, I don't think I've ever been around a group of of 21 very smart people. And can't really figure out why I got selected, but I did, and I really enjoyed my time there. And uh, the beauty about the Gulf Research Board and the whole program is $500 million is a lot of money. And the whole aim is to use it to benefit Gulf communities and the Gulf ecosystems and to tackle oil system safety, human health, and environmental resources. So it's that's a big uh, remit. And uh, with experts in various fields, uh, one has expertise to be able to decide how you're going to uh, steward this uh, large amount of money. And $500 million also uh, makes interest as well. So the total amount of money available for this program over 30 years is going to be very su- substantial. There were other things that were started. There was one called the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative, which was also given uh, $10 million, but their remit was to end in 10 years. And this is the last year of that program. And there were a number of excellent studies that were done by what is called GOMRI. And GOMRI and the NASEM board and research program have worked together on a, a number of things. So it's not just an isolated use of the money. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Tony Knapp, who's the director of the Geochemical and Environmental Research Group at Texas A&M. And we're talking about the Gulf Loop Current. That may be something that is a bit new to you if you're a regular listener to, or if you're popping in the Weather Geeks, and that's what we do here. We're going to break it down for you, talk about why it's relevant to weather and climate. So I want to talk a little bit more. We've talked about some of the ways that the Loop Current and the Loop Current system have impacted hurricanes like Katrina and Michael, there is some sort of speculation or perhaps even research that that suggests that the loop current system uh, is tied to mid-latitude cyclones and even tornadic storms. Can you make those connections or is that that bogus? I, I don't know whether it's bogus or not. I, I tend to – so one of the things I did when I was in Bermuda, my previous life, I started a long time series in Bermuda, which is going out, measuring uh, the deep ocean um, every month and in some cases every two weeks. And so now we have 32 years of data and with that, you can make predictions about what's important, how the ocean's changing over time. I think one of the problems is that in the Gulf of Mexico, we have very little long-term 
uh, data programs, especially in the deep ocean. And that, to me, is a, is, is a shame. And uh, it's a bit of a loss. The day you don't start a long time series, in my view, is a day lost. So, you know, the, the climate is going through many changes. Uh, we have a perturbed cycle. Um, of but you still have the heating and cooling of winter and summer, and so to be able to see changes in those cycles, you actually need a lot more data than I believe we have at present. So I can't really, um, I don't have a view, I, or I don't have information on that. Uh, you are ocean, you are a meteorologist, so perhaps you do, but but uh, I don't think I don't think there's enough data to be able to determine that yet. Yeah, again, that was something that's fairly new to me as a, a meteorologist. I certainly am aware of the tropical cyclogenesis and intensification linkages, but I, I certainly could understand typically mid-latitude cyclones and uh, those storms that often have frontal systems that can produce tornadoes, uh, they form in areas of what we in meteorology call baroclinicity, uh, areas where we have gradients in temperature. And so we often see, for example, off the, the coast of the Carolinas, we often see a formation zone for cyclones uh, because of the Gulf Stream and, and the, the gradient and temperatures there. And so I, I imagine that this, the notion is related to whether these loop current systems are creating sort of gradients that support what we in meteorology call cyclogenesis or the formation of cyclones. So right. an interesting discussion here uh, along the same lines and, and perhaps, uh, again, may not be an area of your expertise, but are there any impacts from your lens? between climate change and the, the loop current system? Well, you know, <laughs> that, that's always a, a, a subject of, of great interest. But as I say, there's uh, relatively little data in the, in the deep ocean to be able to, to tell whether that actually is the case. I mean, we certainly know that the oceans are warming. And, uh, you know, that's something that is, you know, true. Right. That's no, but but the question of what that warming is doing and how that affects the loop current at this stage, uh, we don't really know. And I'd like to state that there have been many many good studies on the loop current, and but the problem is they have not been sustained. They they you know maybe a study for two or three years was done and not sustained. What the Academy report that has been recently published suggests that there should be a 10-year campaign so we can really understand the loop. The, the, the loop forms and, and the timing of it is anywhere from, say, 10 to 14 months. So you don't get many shots at it over a three-year period. And over um, 10 years, you know, you might get four or five opportunities to test with measurement what is going on and why the loop separates. Yeah, this is an important, and I, I, you know, I want to kind of deviate a bit here from the topic to just talk about science because we're we're two scientists, and I think the public often may not know the full lens of how science is done and how we achieve and gain knowledge and move science forward. One way that we do it is through studies and grants and whatnot to scientists at universities and NGOs and and perhaps even in private corporations. But one of the the aspects of much of the physical sciences work, whether we're talking meteorology, ocean 
geography or climate is the need for long term observations. Now, Tony, for example, I spent a good part of my career before coming to the University of Georgia at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center working on large satellite missions to measure rainfall from space. And one of the reasons we did that is we wanted long term trends in rainfall around the globe so that we could understand changes to the water cycle, changes in precipitation intensity. And we are now up to a fairly significant sort of record. Uh, We launched a couple of satellites in 1998 and several years later, we're starting to build that long term record. And I hear you saying that we need similar long term records in the Gulf of Mexico to study the Gulf, Gulf Loop Current, which brings me, I guess, to your Understanding Gulf Systems grant. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this grant, and I really want to dive into it because your specific grant, this is a system of eight projects, I understand, totaling $10.3 million. But your particular part of the the project is a passive Gulf of Mexico loop current observations from high-frequency radar. So tell us a little bit about that overarching project and then your specific research. Okay, so the the Understanding the Gulf Systems Grants, which UGOS, they're known as UGOS-1, there were 31 proposals and they funded eight projects. Uh, and the whole goal was support research and observation for uh, to improve the understanding of the loop. And one of the things that's really interesting and what we have, there's about 180 projects. Uh, radars around the United States. So these radars are high-frequency radars, about 5 megahertz. They they have a transmit antenna and a receive antenna, and they basically just bounce a signal off surface waves. They can look at about 180 miles, 180 kilometers, I'm sorry, about 130 miles. And... um, and get information on current speed and direction. One of the uh, interesting aspects of this is that in order to expand our ocean observations and uh, really understand the loop, we need some idea of the current speeds, direction, etc. on the inflow, that's the water going in between the Yucatan Strait and Cuba, and the outflow through the Florida Straits between uh, Florida and and uh, Cuba. I don't know why it's not called the Cuban Straits, but never mind. And uh, and so there's been a strategy. And my group, uh, we, we formed a, 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 an association called the Loop Consortium. And that consists of uh, Texas A&M University, Rutgers, University of Miami, uh, University of Southern Mississippi and USF, which is University of South Florida. And we put in proposals with a similar data system to put radars, number one, on oil platforms, which is a subject in its own right. Number two, on uh, the uh, dry Tortugas and the Florida Straits looking south. And then my group are putting radars uh, on in Mexico on the a place called the Ile de Contoy and uh, Puerto Morales, which is in the north part of uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. And those are going to look across the strait. And our hope, actually, and we've been working with the Department of Meteorology in Cuba, is to put one radar in Cuba looking west to meet up with the radars 
in Mexico and another radar in Havana looking north to complete a whole program of of uh, surface measurements in that area. Uh, we have intentions with Rutgers to move all the way down into the Caribbean and then supplement that with a uh, a program of gliders or underwater drones that we own. That, that's very interesting. Interestingly, on those underwater drones, we had some colleagues from my university at the Skidaway Institute that are using gliders to look at ocean heat content and hurricanes. So, so we've actually uh, Weather Geeks uh, listeners should be familiar with the concept of these underwater robotic robotic gliders. I want to circle back to your radar because I I I, I have some familiarity with radar because uh, some of my earlier graduate training was in radar meteorology at Florida State, and typically in weather we use what we call C-band or S-band radars. So they're usually five or 10 centimeter radars uh, to sort of probe the the precipitating system, storms, et cetera. You mentioned that these are fairly high frequency radars. Uh, I want to kind of stay there for a moment just to do a little radar meteorology for the Weather Geeks listeners here. So you, you talked in terms of frequency and I was talking in terms of wavelength, uh, but these systems are much higher frequency than the types of typical weather radars. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. That's my understanding. I'm not a uh, a radar expert in any way. I use these tools to um, measure currents and and look at, at ocean systems. But they are much higher frequency. There are a number of types of radars. Your listeners might be interested to know. There are there are. Uh, radars, which are known as weiras, which consist of a number of antennas, about 14 to 16 antennas. And in my um, <laughs> uh, background, to try to get permission to putting radar on a beach, they have to be within about uh, 150 yards of the beach. And they have to be, the two antennas have to be about 200 uh, feet apart. And uh, to get permission is difficult. So luckily, I haven't had to try to get permission for 16 antennas, but only uh, two. And these radars with two are called CODARs, and they're the most uh, used radars around the United States. There's a whole network of these. And we have five in Texas. We're putting in our last one in the uh, at King Ranch. So we'll have the whole of the Texas coast completely covered. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard with a fascinating discussion about some things that may not have been in your wheelhouse of understanding before you decided to tune into this podcast today. But that's the point of a podcast, right? Uh, we're, we're exploring new things, learning new things. And I'm learning right along with all of the listeners today with Tony Knapp, the director of the Geochemical and Environmental Research Group at Texas A&M. 
And I want to stay with your project here because there's just so many other questions that I have about them. Now, you, you mentioned that you're going to be deploying your radars down near the Yucatan Peninsula. I know a lot of people are familiar with that area because they vacation down there in Cancun or Cozumel. Um, will there be any opportunities or a necessity to perform any type of dual Doppler synthesis to fully? And I think you may have alluded to this a little bit. And, and again, we use dual Doppler techniques in weather as well. Uh, we can use dual Doppler radar to actually see the motion in clouds and perhaps detect motions associated with rotating updrafts and storms or perhaps even a tornado vortex signature. Uh, do you use these dual Doppler techniques in ocean current mapping as well? Well, we do not. What we we use are these, you know, these linked radars. And in the case of if you look at the East Coast of the United States, uh, Rutgers operate a network of about 28 of these that are different uh, frequencies. Uh, the higher ones, like 28 megahertz, are very focused. And like if the entrance to the Chesapeake Bay, you can see uh, current, very, very fine resolution of currents. The ones we're looking at, are, our interest is to really look out uh, at least 180 kilometers off the coast and look at eddies and other things that occur at the surface. I think one thing I should add is that these radars are incredibly useful for search and rescue. Um, if a boat goes down, someone goes in the water, you could put an artificial drogue of, say, someone 180 pounds, whatever, <laughs> height, and it will model where that person should be. And generally, it, it, it reduces the search pattern required to find that person to 40% of what would be done with a normal ocean model. So they're, they're coming into their own, even though they're a technology that's been around for a very long time. Of course, the software is is better than it used to be. And linking up all of these around the U.S. coast gives us a terrific uh, observation capability. Very, very interesting. And thank you for adding that. I, I actually, is a good uh, bit of nugget for our listeners here. I want to kind of pose a question about timelines. Where are you in the project in terms of your timelines? Well, we're we're behind. <laughs> well, wouldn't that just be science and not be behind? Yeah. We we know that well as a scientist. I I certainly understand. So so one of one of the one of the issues that we our challenge and there's another challenge with the uh, radars on platforms uh, on oil platforms. So that's another challenge. But our challenge has been you know we're working with colleagues in Mexico and. Uh, rules in different countries are, are different, such as licensing and et cetera. So we're going through a, a longer process than probably would happen if we're in the United States. But, you know, that's just typical. And, you know, we're hoping that these, as far as the timeline goes, that these radars will be operating for a long time. One of the uh, you know, there are some radars that Rutgers operate that are 22 years old. That's not ideal. You'd like to replace them at 10 years. But the point is that once you put these in, they operate for a very long time with very little maintenance. And so the running costs are quite low compared to the acquisition costs. So the acquisition cost of a radar is about $225,000 each, and you have to have a pair, so that's four hundred and fifty. But if you amortize that over 10 years or 20 years, that's not a huge amount of money compared to, say, 
a glider, which is actually the same amount of money, but the running costs are very expensive. In this case, the running costs are not. The data are are uh, go into Scripps University in uh, San Diego, and that data then serve publicly. So you can look on, if you go to a GQs, which is a just Google G-C-O-O-S site, which is the Gulf Coastal Ocean Observing System, you could have a great depiction of these radars in real time. You could see our Texas radars and the other radars that are in this network. And people use them off, often to, you know, if they're going to go fishing or whatever, to see what the currents are, et cetera. It's, uh, they're a remarkable tool, and it's free. <laughs> Very interesting. Now, I am curious as a satellite person, I, like, as I mentioned, I spent a good deal of my career at NASA. Can a, are there any ways to make some of these similar type measurements that you're doing sort of from the radar perspective and from a, a remotely sensed perspective from space? Well, I'm not a satellite person. We use satellites um, continuously to look at uh, sea surface height. Because when the when the water is warmer, as you probably know, I used to when I was in Bermuda, I used to race the Bermuda race all the time, and you actually go uphill uh, when you get to the Gulf Stream because it's about a meter or three feet higher than the water around it because of the temperature, the ocean expands. So this is the whole issue with global climate change. And one of the tools we have to determine where the loop is is satellite measurements because the water is warm. It's much higher than the water around it, and you can uh, you can actually see where the loop is going or is more or less in real time. So there's a you know the radars are part of a an arrow in a quiver. Okay, <laughs> satellites are another, buoys are another, and and there are many uh, other observations and systems that we use to get a bigger picture of everything. Sort of like the way a, a a doctor would diagnose a disease in a person from blood tests to x-rays to whatever. And so uh, we use all the tools at our disposal to be able to determine what is happening with the system. Our problem, though, as I mentioned earlier, is the predictability of it, the difficulty of predicting the the loop and the formation of eddies. And oil and gas companies are so interested in this because they actually have to stop operating when an, uh, when a large eddy goes by because it strums the pipe. You know, you can get four, four and a half knots of of speed, which can certainly affect the safety of drilling. Yeah, I could, I could certainly see how that would be a challenge for those types of operations. Now, my producers actually had a note here, and they wanted me to ask if you can speak to this, and if you can't, uh, we'll move on. But there was an interest in knowing how the loop current system affects uh, things like red tide and dead zones. I know these have plagued the Gulf ecosystem in recent years uh, uh, with a dead zone, very large record dead zones. Uh, are there any relationships between uh, loop current system dynamics and these dead zone and red tide events? Well, this, you know, this is the... Uh the loop and its uh, and its associated eddies is really the dominant physical force in the Gulf of Mexico. If you look at, say, the outflow from the Mississippi, I spoke about sphere drips. 
The outflow from the Mississippi is about 0.02 sphere drips, and the loop is 28. So, so the, the even though you know we think of the uh, Mississippi is an important force, and it is coastally, as far as the energetics of the Gulf of Mexico, the loop is important. And when the loop uh, penetrates the, the shelf, the area nearer the coast, uh, water that's rich in nutrients, which is down uh, in the lower part, is upwelled, and that forms primary productivity, which is, I guess, a long-term uh, long term for phytoplankton growth, which affects the little zooplankton that feed on that and the fish feed on that. So it's incredibly important for the sustainability of, of fisheries and also of mixing water. I mean, the, the, uh, the harmful algal blooms, for example, there's been a study which was sponsored by the National Center for Coastal Science that suggests that the, that the uh, position of the loop in early summer can predict the position of uh, and severity of red tide blooms in the fall. And I don't know. I don't know that study firsthand. I just know of it. And also, as you know, that the um, so the Mississippi, this giant. Uh, amount of fresh water entering the Gulf is full of nutrients, and that nutrients is partially responsible for um, the uh, the lack of oxygen or hypoxia. And as that that uh, it's it's also responsible because it prevents mixing. So if you have a freshwater layer on top of salt, you stop uh, gases being transferred between the two. And obviously an eddy or the loop itself is going to cause a lot more energetics and mix that up sooner. So there's a, you know, everything is connected. That's the uh, beauty about the Gulf of Mexico and everywhere else. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned what happens in Mexico and Mexico waters and off Cuba. So we have a one gulf that we have to study. Absolutely. And it definitely demonstrates the interconnectedness of all aspects of the Earth system. Final question, because we're kind of running short on time, but I wanted to get your thoughts on what are some of the other areas of research that need to be focused on in the Gulf that aren't right now from your lens? Well, I sort of mentioned earlier that I think we need some long time series uh, studies in deep water. There is one that has started recently, funded by Shell, with a partnership with it's a public-private uh, partnership. So Fugro, which are a, a med ocean company, a company that does a lot of work commercially on uh, meteorology and oceans for oil and gas companies. So Shell, Fugro, the University of Southern Mississippi. And our group at Texas A&M University have a mooring at the Stones uh, site, which is a production well, in 3,000 meters of water. And that's sort of the start. And I think, you know, what we need is more of these private uh, public partnerships because the oil and gas uh, companies need the data. Uh, we all as scientists need to know 
what is going on in the Gulf of Mexico. And the public, you know, in the end, it's all about the people that live on the Gulf, use the Gulf, eat the seafood, fish in it, and, and, and have their recreation. I mean, it's very important that the Gulf is well taken care of. And that stewardship could only be done with good, high-quality, reproducible science. Is there anywhere if someone was listening to this podcast today and just really got uh, jazzed about it and wants to find out more information, is there a website or any social media sites you can point us to? Yeah, the one I would would recommend is that of the, uh, number one, you can go to our website, which is uh, gerg.tamu.edu. We run a, a whole series of buoys and gliders off the Texas shelf. And you can see that. In fact, you want to go fishing offshore, I recommend you look up our buoys in real time. And before you go out to to large distances, have a look and see what the wave height and weather is out there. And the other one is GQs, which is the Gulf Coastal Ocean Observing System. And much of what I've spoken about is available there. There are tutorials and other things that are available. And I would highly recommend using that GQ's site. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I knew I would learn some things because this is a new area of, of uh, topically for me. And so I really want to thank Tony Knapp from Texas A&M for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for uh, explaining the loop current and telling us about your exciting research. And I agree, we need those long-term measurements. That's critical to understanding change and dynamics. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the time. This has been Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm from the University of Georgia, and we're listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. Continue to tune in. Remember, we release a new episode every Wednesday. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on Twitter as well, or or like us on Twitter or Facebook. You know what I mean. Keep following us on social media. See you next week on Weather Geeks. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to 1 gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.